thank you for joining us today on Storytelling Your Competitive Advantage. And we're going to bring in our guest, Neil Ford, in just a second. If you tell your child not to go into the basement, they might listen to you. If you tell your child about how before you lived in the house, there was a monster down there, um, they probably will listen further. And that's the power of storytelling. It's not exactly the genre of storytelling we're talking about, but to give you a quick impact. Mike, why are we doing an FYI episode on storytelling? Well, in higher education, um, departments are competing for resources. In admissions, we're frankly competing for students. If we're in advancement, we are um, competing for donations. So we find that storytelling is a way to differentiate your team, your school, et cetera. And um, there's a lot of great storytellers out there, but I'm not sure there's a better modern storyteller than our guest today, Neil Ford. Um, I highly recommend you subscribing to his page. There are lots of people who tell stories. Um, there's a, a commentator I like, uh, Van uh, Neil. Sorry, I know you're a fan of him too. Is it Van? Yeah, Van Nystad. By Nystad, who's who's great. But you know, he has lots of images and in like really like it is Neil in front of a, a black screen telling a story, and it's maybe the longest video is five six minutes long. They're quick, they are uh, really impactful, and there's always a, a deeper meaning behind them. So we're both very excited to host Neil. And, uh, you know, after this episode, I'd highly recommend watching uh, his series because it's fantastic. Yeah, Neil, say hi to everyone today. Hey, hello. I'm sort of surprised and pleased by the number of people here. This is wonderful. Oh, yeah. Neil, um, you know, you've been in marketing and advertising for a long time. You've worked all sorts of careers how has your worldview changed from kind of coming of age in the 70s and 80s to kind of where you are now? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that my worldview has changed okay, uh, uh, because people haven't changed. I'm lucky that a lot of the vibrating anger that I used to have as a young man has dissipated. I mean, I was as subject to road rage as anybody back in the day, but the, the older I've gotten, I suppose the, uh, the amount of testosterone I have in my system is less. And as a result, I've, I've become a kind of more uh, generous person. I don't mean generous in the sense of, you know, monetary donation or, or volunteering, but generous in the sense of granting people, look, they're probably having a bad day if they're being disagreeable. It's not because they're evil. It's not because they're a bad person. It's not because their politics are rotten or anything like that. It's we're all human and we're all in this journey together. And uh, I just am able to apply that in a way now where I, I might have lashed out as a younger person, but uh, I, I still admire the same people now that I admired then, you know, Roosevelt and Eisenhower and John Steinbeck and, and Kurt Vonnegut. So uh, I think people are never going to change. And therefore I think a certain amount of grace and granting people license to just be human is pro probably something I've always felt. I love that. Yeah. Now you mentioned having, uh, I think you said vibrating anger. Did you, did that like erode or was there a moment that sort of changed? Wow. That's a great question. Uh, you know how they, they you ever heard these things where they'll say, at what point does a pile of sand become a pile? You know, oh. it starts out, you go, here's a grain of sand. That's not a pile, two grains of sand. That's not a pile, but at some point it's a pile. So when you say at one point, was there a turning point where I, I no longer had uh, vibrating anger. I would say that, uh, uh, honest to God, just the longer you live, you can go one of two ways. You can get cynical thinking, oh, people are garbage. 
and you know there's a lot of enemies out there and you're surrounded by people who don't like you or you can you can just somehow acknowledge that we are all in this together where there's a grand adventure and it didn't come with a rule book you didn't ask to be born but here you are so um i suppose that in strict answer to your question i started to notice courtesies that people were doing me that they didn't have to do and they didn't do them with the expectation of a reward they were just being sweet and when i stopped to put them together to ask i i started saying to myself are people bad or are they inherently evil or are people inherently good and we know that you know we're all biological cocktails of both to the extent that you expect someone to be nice and you believe that they are nice before they prove you one way or the other, they kind of meet your expectations. You guys have probably heard that, that term, the, uh, the Pygmalion effect. Or the, and that is that when you establish an expectation for a child or a, or, or a police officer or, or whomever, that they are good, that they're going to behave well, they kind of tend to live up to your expectations. And the longer I have lived, the more true that has seemed to be. Very interesting. Thank you. So we have um, a higher education audience um, for us today, you know, people at colleges and universities across uh, the country. Um, and uh, we want to have give them something to take away from this episode uh, about storytelling and um, the power of storytelling and what they do and how that can um, help them with what they do. So what advice would you give in terms of storytelling to someone who has to either convince students that their school is the school to go to, help students along their life cycle, or maybe from an advancement standpoint, you know, give to their school or just be a part of their organization. Um, talk about how storytelling can impact our specific audience of um, people talking to students. You know how when you, you typically, when you watch a presentation, whether it's an orientation or whatever it is, and somebody will get up and they've got, <laughs> they've got a bunch of bullet points on the screen and then they'll, then they'll start reading the bullets. Yes. And they think that they're doing a good job because they're making sure to communicate all the points they wanted to communicate. But unfortunately, they're not looking at it through the eyes of the audience. They're looking at it through the eyes of the presenter. So they think they're doing a good job because they've done their duty. They've dumped the data on the audience. Therefore, it is the audience's responsibility to walk away with it. Okay. I've told you what I need to tell you. I'm off the hook now. You're all informed. Well, you know, when you're in higher education, you know perfectly well, there's a big difference between dumping data on students and having them walk away with a, a fire of curiosity to learn more. It's the chalk and cheese is the difference between night and day. And my sense is that the first trick to storytelling, the first trick is you have to really want to help somebody that day. And that means you care deeply about what they walk away with. And a story isn't worth telling if, it, if someone doesn't learn anything. If they can't look at that and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, I, I cared about the people in that story, or I see myself in that tale, or something similar happened to me. And uh, most of the time, when, when I'm telling my own tales, you'll notice that if, if anybody of your guests were to go to the YouTube channel and watch any of these videos, you'll see, I'm never the star of these stories. I'm always the one who sat there and learned something or, you know, learned about humility or, and I think there's a, 
a grand Socratic uh, tradition, which is, come on, I, I, was it Plato? He says, look, the only thing I know for sure is that I don't know anything. And, and so I think an empathy on behalf of the storyteller to walk in the room and go, you know what I'm not gonna do? I'm not gonna put bullet points up on the screen because bullet points are for memos. Stories are for presentations. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tell you a story about what I want you to walk away with. And why would I do it in story form? Because stories are easy to remember and stories create an emotional response and they create images in the mind. Bullet points do not create images in the mind. And therefore, if, if uh, you, you know, I, I find it mystified why people post pictures of their meals on social media. Mm. Like that, to me, that's just the equivalent of a caveman picking up a rock and grunting rock. Okay, thank you. Um, on the other hand, if you're going to post a picture of your breakfast or your car or your trip to Bali, what you don't realize is you're actually telling a story. The story you're telling is about a very insecure person who's desperately looking for validation. That's the story you're really telling. So when in, if an educator is, is attempting to, um, say, for example, persuade someone to attend their institution, you, there's any number of ways that they could frame that. And I do have to say that the first step, the empathy of saying, well, how, what might they be interested in? Um, it could then involve, you know, uh, there was a person who had a very similar background to you. And can I tell you about their experience here? When they started, this happened, but then they met this person. And it turns out that their roommate guided them to this and they wound up joining that. And then perhaps the most important thing they ever did they, rather than expecting something to happen, they went out and did so. You know, in other words, um, by telling the story of somebody who had perhaps a similar background or similar concerns, the person, the listener can frame ways that that's similar and different to their own experience. And it's the beginning of a conversation. I, I, I'm hoping, Mike and Greg, that this is being helpful. Uh, I, think so. I, I could go on and on. And so I don't want to just monopolize the conversation. So you'll have to rein me in. I'm a talkative person, so uh, I could burn your time here if you're not careful. No, we love it. Yeah, that's yeah, why I we had you it... on. We were hoping you wouldn't give short <laughs> answers, so that would be bad for everyone. <laughs> All right. Mike, I want to. I want to go. I want to just continue on one theme for a second, yeah. and that was how important it is that the whenever it is you're telling a story, it, it really can't be about you. If you had an experience, that's great, but the experience should reflect who you met or are things that happened and what you walked away with. And there's this great quote from George Orwell, where he said that an autobiography is only to be trusted if it reveals something disgraceful, because any life when looked at from the inside is merely a series of defeats. And that anybody who gives a good account of themselves is probably lying. <laughs> and so the, the reason I so enjoy that quote is that first, I, I saw the validity of that. I go, yeah, exactly. I, I don't think of my life as one series of triumph after another. I think to myself, oh my God, you know, this is a regret I have and that's another regret and I'm not doing enough here. And the, the beauty of, of acknowledging that we're all human beings and we're all fallible and we have made enormous mistakes is when you go out into the world and you present yourself as a great success story and you, you cloak yourself in the fancy things you have and the marvelous places you've been and so forth, what do you think is the result of this? Do you think people walk away admiring you? No, they walk away 
thinking either A, you're a tool, or B, you've just, just made them jealous and itching for the chance to bring you down a peg. So oh. congratulations. These things don't produce the results you're after. If you're not, if you're not in the world in social media trying to help people on the journey of life, trying to sympathize with their challenges, what the hell are you using this mo this genre for? Self-aggrandizement, I find endlessly abrasive. Uh, I would add, though, maybe. And I think if you and I, Neil, took a disc assessment on personality, our dots might match because I hate myself and I'll never <laughs> give up an opportunity to um, share that. And I, I, when I talk to people, I know I talk too much and I was like, oh, my God, I'm talking too much. I need to let them talk. So I, I have a, a mindset of that. However, you have to consider your audience. And would you not agree that in some cases there is an audience for grand, um, you know, self um, indulgement and um, someone beating themselves up? That audience wants to relate to them and wants to feel that same way. So there could be situations where when you're telling a story by making it grandiose, you're serving your audience better and not being self-deprecating. Is that, does that make any well, sense? Yeah. I understand, uh, Greg, I'm not really saying that, that one needs to go out into the world and be self-deprecating as the main message, because you, no doubt you're quite good at what you do. And I think that there's a, I think it's entirely fair to suggest to a client or a student, or if you are a doctor, a physician, and you're talking to somebody, it is entirely fair and safe to say, look, I want you to have confidence about this. I am very good at what I do. In fact, I would venture to say I am world-class at what I do. This is why I think that's going to benefit you today. So I, I think there are reasons why you might want to give somebody a sense of confidence that what they're hearing is coming from an expert with some domain expertise that, that will make you feel better about what's being conducted. I did, in fact, say that almost that very thing to a client the other day, they, we were talking about ways that they might present their product. And I said, you know, for all of the faults that I may have at this one thing, I, you can be sure that I'm coming at this with some expertise. I have the 10,000 hours that they talk about. You know, I've been in the business of, of branding and advertising and storytelling for 30 years. I've literally done tens of thousands of presentations and they didn't all go well. And so you can, you can rely that what I'm saying at least comes from a, a standpoint of experience. Now, I don't say that for the benefit of your people on this call in order to proclaim what a wonderful human being I am. What I, what I am saying, though, is I've got enough experience in this space that it should give them confidence that they're not wasting their time being here. But on the other hand, what is the purpose of me putting a picture of a Porsche online and saying, you know, so pleased to have been driving around the okay whatever I got you. Um, you know that doesn't enrich anybody's life I understand I understand um, I could go on I'm, I'm deliberately shutting myself down now but so that I'm not too negative you're, you're doing great Neil you're doing great um, questions, <laughs> questions are starting to roll in for the um, um in the chat and we do encourage that um, we will get to them. Lexi will be reading them in just a little bit. So please feel free to um, leave questions or comments um, in the chat. Mike, I know you have one lined up to go next. Sure. So with stories, you know, there's there's all sorts of, um, you know, news out there that attention spans are shorter than ever. Do you find that's true? Do you need to keep your stories short or does it uh, does it help to, to build like a, a really rich tapestry to, to really um, 
you know, show the environment, et cetera, to, to bring the point across. We call that conversational uh, marketing, getting to the point. So we love talking about that. Uh, well, so I got a bunch of comments about that. The, the first one is everybody's favorite subject is themselves. Hmm. So you can keep somebody's interest <laughs> for a long time, as long as what you're talking about is either them and their concerns or they can easily see themselves and their concerns in that. Um, you know, I, we seem to be living in a, in a day and age of, of short attention spans. And I do believe that there is a certain biological component to that with dopamine and the way that we're overstimulated by things like, for example, TikTok. Um, however, the same person that will grow impatient at a 60 second message will also sit down and binge a 13 hour TV series. Uh, they'll just do it in one throw, you know, stopping only to go to the bathroom and occasionally, you know, ingest food. So clearly they have time and attention to spare provided that they are interested. And so I, I you used the word tapestry a moment ago, and I think that's a really apt, you know, because tapestries, as in the bio tapestry, they, they were stories told on a, on a, canvas, so to speak, that was almost chronological. You, you, could, you could step up to it. And even if you were illiterate, you could see perfectly well what had happened. And people love to hear about characters that they're interested in. So say, for example, if I were to return to the issue of like, you're, you're talking perhaps to a student or parents of a student who are interested in attending a university. And you were to be able to, to describe a case of a student who bore great similarities to, let, let's say, for example, um, my son happens to be on the autism spectrum, and he went to uh, St. Mary's College of, uh, in California. And it was incredibly empathetic, kind, and observant of the person we were talking to, to say, you know, there was a case of a, a young man, very much like your son, who had this experience. Well, I, I could have sat there all afternoon listening to every single word of the story of that experience because A, it was, you know, everybody's favorite subject is themselves. So they had the presence of mind not to talk about the brilliant bell tower and the, and the meals and the, the extravagance of the dorms, but rather to frame it as in, this is an experience I think you could picture yourself in. And so that was one thing. It was, it was about us. And the second thing was the character that they were telling the story about was empathetic and, and one who had achieved something. And so it was a little David Copperfield, you know, I mean, I, I got interested and I wanted to find out what happened to him yeah. at the end. So um, I hope that helps some. It does. And it's interesting. You, how much work have you done um, in higher education? I think you did the Optimist series for UCLA. Have you done um, others? Yeah, so the Optimus series was really just a, it was a series of films that um, UCLA had commissioned because it was their feeling that there was too much acrimony in society. And in spite of the fact that there were controversial issues, there was a way of having that dialogue about it that would, you know, universities are supposed to be environments in which you can have uncomfortable conversations and you can probe ideas and you can... Um, had discourse civilly. Uh, unfortunately, it seems as though there's a kind of a, 
this is happening less and less. You know, you, uh, there's so much sensitivity around controversial issues that universities, ironically, are they're kind of difficult places to have those conversations. But that was the stimulus for it was to, to uh, the Optimus series was about, why don't we just go into this thinking that maybe there's a solution we can all gravitate towards. Um, when I was uh, at Saatchi and Saatchi, uh, the big advertising agency, the, uh, when I was in New York, I became sort of worldwide head of creative education. And that was very much around learn, helping people learn how to tell stories to clients and communicate the, the merits of creative work to them. And um, from that experience, I, I very much gained the, the, the sort of religion of, if you don't know who you're speaking with, then before you launch into some tale, it might be of some benefit for you to learn as much as you can. And in that sense, walking in with a curiosity about the people that you're speaking with is perhaps the first component of storytelling, being legitimately curious and interested in them as people and what their journey has been. And from that, the relevant story will emerge that might be of some interest to them. In other words, if a, it's a little bit like choice of movies. If you have a uh, you know, a nine-year-old girl, she's not going to be interested in, uh, you know, a story about necessarily about like uh, Navy SEALs attacking, you know, Addis Ababa. So, um, you know, your audience, I think, is the first component of any story. Mike, I always find myself launching off on these answers and then forgetting what the question was. So you'll have to sort of police me, <laughs> police me on whether or not I'm providing you with the correct answer. Well, there are no correct answers, right? That's part of the fun. <laughs> well, useful, you know, the, yes. for your audience's sake, you know, whether it's a, a value. I um, think it is. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, positivity. Because sometimes, uh, and especially in higher education, you know, the news isn't always positive. Our folks, uh, our audience might be stressed. And, um, you know, uh, uh, the stories might not all be positive, but you can put them in a positive light. So how do you, um, I guess, how do you keep, your story's focused on the positive if, you know, um, that, that can be difficult to do. Well, in my case, I've kind of decided that that's my brand. Yeah. And the reason is the world has plenty of the other, the alternative, and there's no reason to contribute to that. Uh, there are things that infuriate me just like anybody else, but the world doesn't need my anger. That, that's going to benefit no one. There are whole TV networks and radio stations dedicated to making people angry. And I want no part of it. You've, you've probably heard the Cherokee proverb that there, were two, there are two wolves fighting inside of all of us. You know, one is filled with anger and jealousy and greed and resentment and arrogance. And the other one is filled with joy and love and hope and humility and kindness. And the wolf that eventually is going to win is the one you feed. So I'm trying to make it my business to go into the world and give people some sense. And not, not unreasonably, most people really most people are really truly kind of good and cool. And if you spend enough time with them, you'll, you'll wind up being friends. And, but the problem is that if, if you consume a steady diet of outrage, whether it's from news media or online, or even among friends that are kind of toxic because they just can't stop vibrating with anger, then that's going to have effect on you. It, it, it will feed the evil in you. And uh, I've had the occasion to go into public spaces 
and watch somebody behave badly, typically to a server or somebody behind a counter. And the reason they behave badly with them is because they're the person behind the counter seemingly can't punch back. So they take out their anger and their rage on somebody. It's a little, it's approximately the equivalent of kicking a dog. Well, congratulations. You, what was the purpose of that exactly? It's simple transference of frustration. But I've, I have seen with my own eyes when a certain graciousness or sweetness about the people around them, instead of attacking them, they give them the opportunity to apologize or to be better. And, and I watched as they recovered themselves and apologized and it left everybody feeling cleansed. Like we walked out of the space, we had preferred to have lived through that than to not have because it demonstrated to all of us that people are capable of actually finding their better angels in spite of themselves. And so when you're asking about like, well, how do you keep it positive in perhaps in, in the own storytelling is that, look, if you believe we're not going to make it, that this is all a disaster, <laughs> I feel so sorry for you. You look, come on, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. We'll fix it. We didn't survive this long, you know, because we were all murderous beasts, despite what you've heard. Right. And, and therefore, if you just, if you just think rationally for a minute, look, we're going to make it. Okay. It doesn't mean we're not going to have to fix things and make, make some sacrifices. Definitely. We're all going to have to make some sacrifices, but, but you know what, in the same spirit that you're going to walk, you can walk away cleansed from a scenario where you saw somebody who was very nasty and then recover themselves through the sweetness and the, and the encouragement of the people around them. Despite our problems, when we solve those problems, we're going to feel better about ourselves than if the problem had never occurred. Mm. And, and uh, we're going to have to do with a little humility and we're, we're going to have to um, try to suck up people's anger and not respond in kind. And what I would like to suggest is, you know, that whenever you're telling stories uh, out there in, in your own worlds, um, I don't think it benefits anybody to come at it from the standpoint of, you know, that people are crappy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love it. That's, that's good. Well, Lexi, I've seen a slew of questions come in. Um, if you don't mind, I kind of want to answer them. Yeah, I'll start. We've had a couple of people share their experiences as well. So Christopher mentions that in terms of positivity, I have found the students just want to know you care, even if that means pointing them towards another institution. Angelique also shares, I work for Rosemont College in admissions and was a transfer student in my undergrad. I shared my experience with first years and transfers about how I went to a big school and it didn't work out for me and went to the workforce while trying to finish school. My experiences were able to not only understand transfer student and understand the transfer credit process, but also share that sometimes a smaller school works best for one-to-one -one resources. I recently graduated from Rosemont, so I can also speak on my personal experience in the classroom as well. Great. Yeah, I mean, that's the best when you can, um, it, it, the, the point about the school not always being best for everyone, you can't make your institution fit a student. 
but you can make your school stand out to the students that would be the best fit there. And honesty and authenticity is so important in storytelling and every communication um, that um, I think that that's a great point. Yeah, and if I may uh, editorialize for a second, I think where institutions fall get in trouble is when, you know, after two years, four years, et cetera, they can't articulate what they provided that student, what the student experienced at that school, because then it becomes very hard to create that engagement long-term, um, you know, students don't donate, et cetera. Um, you know, that's where it starts to break down. Neil, we'd love your thoughts on it. You know, this that's a very interesting proposition that when a student emerges from the institution, what is it that you have provided them? You know, we when you think about the way that, uh, higher education is perceived now, there is a portion of the audience that thinks of it as nothing more than a certification factory. Mm -hmm. That that its whole point and only point is to emerge with a document that will provide them with a referral to employment at very high remuneration. Like it's transactional. They they pay an exorbitant amount of money to, uh, to procure a certification that gives them employment that will make them a lot of money. That's, that's one perception. Another perception is that, uh, that, and I don't know how broadly distributed this is, but that the purpose of a university or college education is to try to learn what a good life is. Like I want to be exposed to the smartest people they can gather so that I can learn how to live in the world and what a, what a good life is. And I, I find that there is a certain decline in the latter and an, and an uptick in the former. And I find that kind of disappointing. You know, uh, if, if, I were, if I had a university, the first guiding principle would be that students are not water bottles to be filled up, they're torches to be lit. And I, I think that there's not enough emphasis on that with the students themselves that, you know, they, they get beaten up into thinking from a variety of sources that the only, that the only value of a human being in the world is their wealth. This is that the, it equates money to value and there's just so much more to life. And, uh, I, I wonder if, you know, when the, I forget the name of the commenter who had said that, look, in their own experience, a big university wasn't for them, that a small college was a, was a better environment. And, and boy, I can vibe that completely. That was Angelique. Angelique's question, her comment is brilliant to me because you're trying to, you know, the, a college experience, a higher education experience, the word experience um, transcends the certification. And uh, to me, there is a greater story to be told. The journey of a person's life, where they began, where they wound up, what they experienced in between before they depart, the universe experience is a really significant and important part of that. And if it's only looked upon as a, as a job advancement factory, I find, I find that story kind of disappointing and soulless. Well, Do we you. want to... Um... Go to another question from Lexi, Mike? I think so. Yeah, because we, we have them coming in and we want to make sure we get to those as they're there. So Lexi, um, go ahead. 
Yeah, so I have a question from Jessica. They ask, how do you create stories that resonate with large, diverse audiences like prospective students? Or should you create more stories that resonate with smaller groups and connect on a smaller scale? That's an excellent question. That's a, I wish we had hours together. Um, there are things that are universally human. And I think one need look no further than you know, that some things, some stories, whether it's Harry Potter or, or some of the Marvel movies or whatever achieves really vast international acceptance, those are a demonstration that, that some human stories are simply universal. And the struggling of an underdog and the and the the rewards that come with being helpful to other people. Um, I think that these are no matter how diverse your audience is. Seriously, no matter how diverse, there are things that will appeal to them as human beings on a on a path. I I do think that there is a certain beauty to having certain niches. But in my own experience, tethering people to that, even, even if you're talking to a very, very defined niche, your goal in a way is to, re, is to restore the sense that they belong to the larger human family. Jeez, I wish I, uh, this is the kind of thing you have, this is a conversation you have over coffee or beer so that you can really dig down into well, what's the story you want to tell. But I, I do find that I get the most marvelous comments from people on YouTube and TikTok. Just, just thousands of brilliant notes from people talking about how much they appreciate uh, something that I was talking about. And the crazy thing is that 90% of my stories come out of my own personal experience. I don't talk about events. Events are not evergreen. Things that happen to me just happen to me. And the, and the beauty of it is that they were true stories and those really did happen. So I feel some confidence in talking about how human beings are. And my guess is that if you were to stand up in front of that very large and very diverse group, that your personal experience as a human being is going to match sometimes the larger human picture. Even if uh, you had a very different upbringing from somebody else, there are, there are human ambitions that transcend gender and ethnicity and whether you're able-bodied and uh, where you are on the neural spectrum. There's just some things that I think are universal and I stick with those. Neil, so, yeah, we wish... sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, we both you're... jumped in. We both got excited. Yeah. When you're in the moments, um, do you know those stories are happening when you're living them in the moment or is it no. more of a, okay. So it's a situation like weeks later, you're like, Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 You know, my, my father used to tell me, he says, life doesn't come with theme music. You don't know when you met your future spouse. You did, nobody, you know, there was no swell of violence. There, there was no like wah, wah, at the end of something where you embarrass yourself. That, and because life doesn't come with theme music, it is only in retrospect that you realize what it was that you took away. Uh, um, there's, uh, I, do think, I do think that there's one thing that's happening to me lately, which is that as I have been getting these tales out into the world, um, I have started to, I've started to observe the way that a detective might observe a crime scene. And I'm sort of like, now I'm looking for clues. And uh, so 
So, but up to this point, Mike, no, never, this hadn't happened that way. And I'm going to continue on this. Um, and I'm, I hate to make it about marketing and that, but um, we, we talk a lot about conversational marketing, jumping back to that. We have an e-course on it that's available. Anyone that wants information on that um, can certainly reach out. But you mentioned it earlier, and it's about making the stories about um, them, about, you know, because people want to hear about themselves. So you have all these life experiences and you've done stuff and you're fortunate enough to have that. And maybe at some point you realize, hey, that thing that happened two weeks ago, that'd be an interesting story. How do you make that story about someone else? So someone watching today that has all of these experiences in their life, but they want to um, connect with and reach students and um, make it about the student and not them. Um, do you have a trick to making stories that you tell about the audience or do you just think the audience kind of fits into what you're talking about? Well, there's going to be a big difference between having a one-on-one conversation or a, a one-on-five conversation of course. and, and then just throwing something out into the world and waiting for it to descend on people. Um, because I, because I don't know anything about the people that I'm sharing something on social media, like on a TikTok or a YouTube or, or a LinkedIn because I don't know who's going to receive it. Um, I just, I throw it out there uh, in the hope that my human experience will conform to theirs and they'll find some meaning in that. However, the, in conversation uh, where data will reveal a great deal about the person you're talking to, it, it really does. It's incumbent on you to be curious about where they are and what their concerns are and um, what their ambitions are. Uh, there's, a, there's this great quote from Charles Bukowski, and I'm really fond of it lately because the older I get, the more desperate I get about this quote. And it's that people will get so upset and agitated over tiny, trivial, meaningless things. But when it comes to something really significant, like completely wasting their lives, they don't seem to care. And why I consider that quote apt in this context is that you think to yourself, yeah, you really need to be concerned when you're speaking to one or five or 10, you really need to be concerned about what do they want really? What, what would give them some sense that this journey was worth it, that they were glad they were here? Because you know, it can't be about adding a dime a year to the dividend really if that's it okay fine you know where to go you know what to do if it's just about that everybody's going to have a different ambition but but i will tell you that there seems to be a fairly universal ambition among most people and that as they want to be useful they they just want to help and i think they're frustrated a lot of times that they don't feel useful that their job isn't giving them the sense that they're contributing anything except making some douche nozzle rich. And under those circumstances, it becomes really critical that an institution or a company or an individual try to express what their values are. You know, Simon Sinek would say, start with why. I, I think that's incredibly useful that, that you, you get out there into the world and try to make it about look, the, these are the beliefs I have. And in my case, personally, my, the, the belief I want to share over and over again is that actually most people are pretty cool. Don't be so upset. Don't tip into the rage machine. Don't let them get you so upset. 
they seem to think that their job is to hold your attention by getting you angry. That's don't participate. That's kind of my, that's my mission. And so I think that, you know, when you're talking to somebody out there in the world, the, the job is to sort of see if you can find what theirs is. And as uh, Zach says in the comments, Bukowski is a beacon of positivity, of course. <laughs> Not most of the time. Well, there's there's positivity and real uh, being realistic as well. He's tell, yeah, but he's authentic. Yeah, he's yes. for real authenticity that uh, makes the world go round. Um, Lexi, let's get to another question. Yeah, Kayla asks, how do we establish a trustworthy rapport relationship for sharing stories while also quickly contextualizing and differentiating our university? Wow, that's a tough one. Lexi, can you read that again? Yeah. How do we establish a trustworthy relationship for sharing stories while also quickly contextualizing and differentiating our university? So I can talk a little at first and it'll be wrong. And then Mike <laughs> and uh, Neil can um, just give them a chance to mull that one over. Where you come from, um, when you're telling a story, uh, you need to be a trusted source for that story. So that, um, uh, that's tough. Like, you know, if your school is a trusted institution, that's obviously helping if you're telling the story. Um, the I, I know I just said authenticity, so I'm not using that as a crutch. But if every communication you have with someone is authentic and truthful, if your school isn't fit the fit for a student and you're honest about that, boy, have you um, done your audience a service on that. So um, establishing a trustworthy rapport and a relationship with someone, I think means always telling the truth, always making them aware of what you can do and what you can't do and being very clear on that. So don't lie, I guess. Um, let's all get started. So I don't know if that um, uh, prompts thoughts or is just a 180 from what Mike or Neil are going to say. Mike, you want to take a crack? Yeah, I mean, you're our, our guest, so I want you to, to do the, the cleanup hitting. But um, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, and again, like in the series for people who've been on multiple episodes, um, for, to me, authenticity drives everything. So if you don't lead with authenticity, it just doesn't hit. Um, so yeah, that's that would be my starting point as well. I would, I would agree with Greg. And, um, you know, it's not a fun thing to say in higher education. Every institution is unique, but institutions have a lot of similarities too. And I think we have to be honest about that. And if we have similar programs and similar faculty and similar experience, that's not necessarily bad. I think the key is finding, okay, well, what is our little, um, our little niche that's slightly different that makes us unique? Mike, I think we don't do a lot of sports and obviously our audience is a sports, but this is what I can think of. Say you have a basketball team at your school and you're you know, you're reaching out to get people that might be interested in that, but your basketball team's not very good. Tell the stories like our, you know, because every other school would be like, join our school because our basketball team is the three-time division three championship. What if you said our basketball team sucks, but this kid practiced hard every single day and he made the team and here's his story and what difference that made in his life. You know, we suck, but you can make us better. There's the story where you put someone in there and obviously that's going to take a little bit of a color, but I think that will resonate with someone that might not be the best at basketball, but wants to come play at your school. So put academics in there, put a program in there, put something else in there. But uh, an honest um, story that someone can see themselves in. Again, I'm ruining everything. Neil, why don't you fix it? <laughs> Greg, yeah, ruining. Uh, so uh, because the authenticity thing has been covered, uh, I want to actually take a moment to talk about the difference between service 
and servile. Um, there's a, I remember a waiter in Canada. He was this French Canadian and he was so, so good a waiter. And what made him magical was I was on a, my honeymoon with my wife. And what made him magical was when he was not needed, there was no trace of him in the ether. But I dropped a spoon and I'm not kidding. In less than three seconds, there was a new spoon in front of me. And I said to him, I said to him, how did you do that? And, you know, in his French accent, he says, I've been watching you. <laughs> and, and so I, I go, I go, you've been watching me, you know, sort of accusatorily, um, like you've been spying on me. You, you've been watching me. And his response was, I love when couples are in love. I love to watch it. And I thought, what a magical thing to say, you know, that, that he loves watching couples in love. So think of, if we, let's just unpack this for a minute. So he says, so first of all, he's gone, right, when we don't need him. And then he magically appears. And what he's doing is he's giving us plenty of space. Um, in other words, he's not a hovering presence like a, like a cringing sort of servant might be right? You know, like, is there anything else I can get you? Um, and it's not an arbitrary presence. It's, it's presence when needed. So he's a professional, like he knows what he's doing. And then on top of it, this third thing where he levels on this business about, I love to watch couples in love. So what he's suggesting is this isn't just a, I'm not just doing this for money. There's a certain pleasure I take in, in doing this job. So let's feather that together with what we were saying a minute ago about like, well, how do you make the case for your university or you know, when you're trying to compete with others and telling the stories? I, I wonder if it's a good idea to be in competition with other schools at all. That why does it have to be a competition? Why can't it just be, this is a marvelous place that offers a certain kind of experience and if that's for you, that's wonderful. And if it's not for you, I wouldn't dream of keeping you away from something that might be better. Let me instead just describe what we take such pleasure in and what such joy. And, and so that waiter just loves to watch people in love. Do you think I'm ever going back there? Well, if I ever get back to Calgary, I sure as hell am going back <laughs> in, the, in the prayer that he will still be there. That's the professional who takes joy in what they do. And let's, let's think about the, let me go back to those, uh, the, the competing wolves, right? You've got greed and jealousy and arrogance, or you've got joy and hope and humility and kindness. You will attract plenty if you just pull them towards you. Um, and that's going to be confidence and joie de vivre and, and the loveliness of wanting to share. Yeah, that's good. Well, Neil, I had a question. Some of our roles um, on campuses, you know, some people will, uh, you know, investigate the student experience. Um, they'll be in a situation where they're very much listening for a story. Is there a, a way to balance 
listening for an outcome versus just being centered and in the moment, because we do have a goal to extrapolate information, but you know, if we're just sitting there waiting for that, we're going to miss out on the gold sometimes. Gee, Mike, that was such a lovely question. I'm not. You've been Kashinsky. That's what we call it. He does it once an episode. He Kashinsky's our guest. And uh, <laughs> that's the question that, you know, that's Mike. Gotta love him. I, I wonder if he could just help me out and hit me with that again. Um, so my apologies. How do you balance, you know, sitting, listening to a story and listening for an outcome to say, aha, there's the goal. That's what we need versus just saying, you know what, I'm going to kind of put down the notebook, stop taking notes and just really be present. Because my thought is maybe if you're doing the latter, you might catch more than if you're doing the former. Oh, okay. So yeah. Wow. Yeah, that really was a nice little, that's a, that's a beer conversation for sure. So uh, being, okay. Um, let's go back a minute ago to the idea of generosity or, or joy or kindness and humility. Um, wow. The power of a good listener is really underestimated. Um, when somebody legitimately thinks you're listening to them, um, that's so powerful. Uh, you know, because they're indicating they care. They're like, they care about what you're saying. And so, yeah, if they're not, if they're, if they're not eager to jump in and complete your sentence, but rather embrace and absorb what you're saying, it's a very generous act, but it's also, I believe, better for you in the end. Um, and let's, let's think about what it, you know, you're pointing out something I hadn't even thought about until your, your point which was, okay, so even when you're not speaking, you're telling a story. Even when you're not the one doing the talking, you're communicating, aren't you? And when I, I had the opportunity to do a little business with Tim Tebow, when I was working at TiVo, we did a campaign because of Tebow, Tebow, right? And I had never met him and he was, his time was definitely pressured. Everybody wanted a piece of him. And we did a couple of commercials with him. He was a very lovely guy, really quite interesting. But his number one quality uh, was that when you were speaking with him, he was looking deeply into your eyes and seemingly interested in everything you were saying. It was very impressive because everybody always wanted a piece of him. He was always being pulled this way and that. But when he was talking to you, he was, you were right in front of him and he was listening and not it wasn't a fakey thing. It wasn't, it wasn't an affectation. It was the, it was the real guy. And I thought, Oh, I'm going to walk away from this with a neat little tool, which is really sincerely care about what somebody's telling you, because you never know. It could be something profound. It, and, and you may need to let them finish their sentence. You know how some people are, it takes them a while to get to the punchline. Let them, let them get to the end and you're going to get a gift out of that. So I'm quite grateful to you, Mike, for I'm, t I'm walking away with that one. That's a good one. Um, good. Good. Um, if that's, that's being Kashinsky, then OK, then, that, then you know, <laughs> no, it's always good on it's, you. It's, My wife would say that's not. But, you know, <laughs> um, that is the time um, that we have. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Neil, this is amazing. Um, love the conversation. I'm curious. 
uh, for the folks still on, please check out Neil's videos. They're awesome. Um, the stories he tell, um, just as an example, um, I had to use this quote. Um, he's trying to describe a guy as big. And instead of just saying the guy was big, he says, if he collided with the fire hydrant, he'd leave a dent. I just love <laughs> wordplay. So um, I was instantly a fan. That's the first video of yours I watched. So check out Neil's stuff. I wonder if you like talking about storytelling even more than you like telling the actual stories, um, because this was certainly enjoyable as well so thank you for joining us uh, Neil if, uh, if folks want to follow up with you what's the best way for them to do that yeah they they can just reach me on my email which is neilford at gmail.com um, I would encourage them actually to go to the YouTube channel because the, the, the beauty of it is there's a kind of a library of stuff there you'll you'll feel like you know me definitely Lexi, <laughs> from Lexi already put the link in the chat so um go to the chat click on Neil's link um and find that out Mike um, yeah. real quick oh, oh I'm sorry Neil did you have a parting shot or just something? that I, I have an unusual my name is spelled sort of unusually you can see it sort of you know on the thingamajig n-e-a-l-f-o-a-r-d so sorry just mouse mind. over mouse over Neil's face and you'll get the correct spelling of his name f-o-a-r-d um, Mike, what's coming up next week on FYI? I will be on vacation, so I won't be present for it. But um, So our, our tour of California continues with Dr. Lisa Nunn from the University of San Diego. She's going to talk about creating authentic belonging for the folks who are on um, one of the earlier episodes. We actually cited some of her work. So uh, again, like really excited about all the guests we've had, Neil. Um, thank you again for you know all the time and preparation and, and all the insights today. We all greatly appreciate it. It's truly a pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Lexi. Even yeah. though we're not looking at you, I know you're there. Thank you very much. She's the wheels behind the machine. Thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us on FYI. Um, everyone, I hope you have a great day. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Cheers.